Well, today I'd like to start a new series from the book of Hebrews. Um, we're actually doing this on Tuesday night, but I thought I would argue with myself on Sunday between Sunday and Tuesday uh, and, and do something different uh, here. Um, the setting, I think, in the, the book of Hebrews, the Christians clearly feel threatened, and Judaism is a religion that the Roman Empire recognizes. It's legal, and Christianity apparently is not yet legalized. And I think the temptation will be to take refuge then from persecution by falling back, falling back into the practices of a faith that uh, is indistinguishable from that of Israel. Now, this setting could fit either Rome, and that's the you know the end of the book. It says you know we greet we, the, those from Italy send you greetings, and of course we don't know. Well, is it the people in Italy sending greetings from elsewhere, or is it the people who are elsewhere sending back greetings to Italy? Um, so it could be that the letter is written to Jerusalem, or it could be that it's written to Rome. Uh, it could describe the predicament of the Christians. You know, we read this morning in. Uh, Acts chapter 6 that many of the priests the word of God kept on spreading in 6-7 and the disciples increased and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith and so some have speculated that the book of Hebrews may be written back to this community of priests uh, to explain the intricacies between the differences between the Old Testament which they would be well acquainted with and what has happened with, uh, you know, what difference Christ makes. Uh, especially as we get into the book, the day of Yom Kippur, or the day of atonement, and its meaning is going to become uh, quite important, both in how we understand the original and, and Christ's interpretation of that. It could be that the Romans, you know, that in Rome they addressed, addressed uh uh, or faced a similar problem that, you know, uh, I think it's Von Harnack that talks about that perhaps the book is written by Aquila and Priscilla and they're mentioned, you know, they're companions of Paul and they would be among those who would have had to flee Rome because of the uh, persecution that uh, occurred there. Uh, and so it could, it could be uh, that there is that predicament. Uh, it could, I think that whatever it is, it's certainly a book that addresses our own predicament. That we have an empire that we are, you know, faced with and the temptation will be to in some way give way to empire um, and to forsake the faith or in some way to degrade the faith. We know from the uh, what is said in Acts or in Acts chapter 8, that there is a persecution, you know, in 8.1, on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. And what's happening in the book of Hebrews, they're Jewish Christians, they, who, they themselves have apparently never seen or heard Jesus in person, they've learned of him from someone else, and they've been persecuted, uh, because of their belief, they've suffered public abuse. Some have even suffered imprisonment. 
There's been looting of their property, though no one has been martyred. And they've, been give, they've given clear evidence of their faith. They've served their fellow Christians. Uh, as it says in chapter 10, you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. <laughs> Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which was a great reward, for you have need of endurance. And this will be thematic in the book of Hebrews, to endure, to press on, to gain the fullness of perfection, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And so in some way, their Christian development has been arrested. Instead of pressing ahead, they're inclined to come to a full stop in their spiritual progress. And if not, indeed, to slip back, perhaps into uh, previous Jewish practices. And probably they were reluctant to sever their ties with this, you know, religion that offered them legal protection and maybe a degree of cultural protection because when they become Christians, it may be that they're having, you know, their families are, 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 uh, there's a fallout there. So God is... The writer says in chapter 6, Not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the end. Do not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the argument throughout is that Christ is superior. Uh, He's superior to the old prophets. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to a superior sacrifice. He's a superior, you know, priest. That Christ is Lord and this lordship accounts certainly for Jewish history. It accounts for history in general. And we have immediate implications of this history. You know, he's saying in the book, I think that the the situation, we could describe it in very large terms. The greatest evils in history have always been promulgated in the name of a return to something. You know, think of in the idea of a return to Eden, the return to a pure golden past. Let's make America great again. Uh, Let's make Germany great again let's make Rome great again or maybe let's make Israel great again and I think that's the temptation is to imagine that there is some purity there's some golden age and we have to return to this pure past untainted by these foreigners the Gentiles in this case these people who do not worship as we worship And of course, this worship is always fused with the problem of the nation. And so this is the call of the Romans, the Jews, the Nazis. I think it's the call of idolatrous Christians of our own day. If we could just go back to the 1950s, you know, or if in that period, if we could just go back to uh, the time when the temple sacrifices were unmolested. 
And so it's this call to preserve the nation in the face of fear that put Christ on the cross, right? Don't you know that one man must die for the nation to survive? And what this gets wrong and what the writer of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is going to say is that that is, you're looking at history in the wrong way. History's moving forward in the case of Christians. The kingdom of God is established in the midst of the kingdom of man. It says that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. God is working out his redemption in the midst of history, in the midst of, you know, the rule of uh, foreign nations, that his kingdom is being established. The Jewish tendency and the human tendency is to long for Eden, to long for a return, to go back to Israel, to imagine that the truth is to be found in an earlier time and an earlier manner of living. If you threaten the God of the nation and those who wear his mark, you know, they're going to to bear their teeth. They may threaten your life. The writer of Hebrews says, now as yet we have not shed our blood. And here we need the word of the Hebrew writer so as to find rest. I think we face a very similar situation in the midst of the wilderness. It needs to be declared that we have obtained a sure and better word. Hebrews 2.16, For he assuredly, he does not give help to angels. He does not simply give help to spiritual beings, is the idea. His help is incarnate help. His help is an embodied help. He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Do not harden your heart as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. The writer is going to say, enter my rest, press on. So Hebrews is going to center on this covenant with Abraham for this Jewish frame of reference, but fill out the meaning uh, of Abraham and Israel as it's fulfilled in Christ. And so there is a continuity with Israel and there's a contrast. One of the questions, one of the key questions in the writing of Hebrews is whether the Levitical offerings, you know, what is the role of these sacrifices? Can they make us perfect? The writer says they only have a shadow of the good things to come and they do not contain the true form of these realities. It can never buy the same sacrifices that are continually offered year by year make perfect those who approach. It may be that the sacrifices are still being offered in the temple. It may be that some that are a part of this church are the very priests that offered those sacrifices. And the writer is going to, you know, the way the word perfection here is used is uh, one of being brought to maturity, to fullness, that the telos of the sacrifices is realized in Christ, that we now have unimpeded access, he says, to the Holy of Holies. We have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. That is, that there is real cleansing. There is real circumcision of the heart. For the author of Hebrews, this is the awe-inspiring difference that Christ makes where there is a symbolism of the presence of God in the temple. Christ has truly entered into God's presence, into the holy place, once and for all. And then it says, he sat down. He sat down. He's planning to stay. Unlike the high priests of old who approached with a quasi-sacramental sign, the blood of the new covenant is the high priest's you know, very own lifeblood. That is, Jesus is the true high priest, and the blood that he's offering is his own life. In other words, the high priest in this case pours himself out. This is the language of Philippians, the kenotic love of Christ, I think, is pictured in the book of Hebrews as part of the high priestly service that he does. The goat sacrifice, in the goat sacrifice, you know, what was it that the blood of the goat uh, represented when it's applied to the altars? Uh, I don't think the idea is that death is being brought before God. I think, in fact, this is a kind of blasphemous understanding for the Jews, but rather that it is representative of lives dedicated to God. That's what the whole priestly service was about. Not that, they, that God desired the blood of bulls and goats, but he desired lives in service to God. And in Christ, then, this is the fulfillment of that sacrifice. Just as it is appointed for mortals to die once and after that the judgment, Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many, and he will appear a second time. So this... Uh, in the life of Christ, so too the blood, the life dedicated to God. Uh, in the life of Christ, it is not the death of Jesus which God desires and needs. We tend to focus on the death. It's the life of Christ overcoming and defeating death which we need and which God has provided in Christ. I think the, the theology of Hebrews is saying precisely the opposite of the traditional exclusive focus on the death of Christ. In Hebrews, it is the resurrected and ascended Christ interceding at the right hand of the Father who saves. The high priest who intercedes for us does not intercede simply on the basis of his death, but through his eternal embodied life. Certainly his death is a prerequisite. It's a foregone conclusion to his you know, life, his resurrection, his ascension. But Hebrews is absolutely clear that it is on the basis of his resurrected, ascended body. This will be the argument of the early chapters. That he has become a son of... He has become incarnate. He has suffered as we have suffered. And it is on this basis that he intercedes for us. He's experienced the full range of humanity. And he represents that humanity in the very presence of God. 
The ascended Christ is for Hebrews the culmination of the saving work of Christ. And the clear picture is that his ascension, you know, the writer of Hebrews is going to focus on this again and again. It's when he's passed through the heavens. He's going to focus on when he is no longer on the earth that he does this high priestly ministry in the heavens. Why is that so important? Because he's brought heaven and earth together. His entry into the Holy of Holies and his appearance on our half before the Father is in and through his flesh, in and through his his body, represented then in the Holy of Holies. So God is fully made available to us and humanity is fully represented before God in the great high priest who mediates between the two. The other thing is, I think we need to understand the nature of sin when he says that our consciences have been cleansed from sin. The way in which sin plagues our conscience is the same way sin makes the priest or the high priest and the tabernacle unclean in the Old Testament. As in chapter 2 of Hebrews, it makes clear that the devil's manipulation of the fear of death is that which enslaves us. Sin and death do not simply describe cause and effect. Sin and death are integrated into one another so that the orientation of fear which we have toward death describes the enslavement of sin. What do we need cleansing from? What does our conscience need to be cleansed of? The same thing as the elements of the priest. Death. Christ's death cleanses the conscience of the fear of death and what he puts in its place is life, is resurrection life. So death is not the answer to a problem. Death is our problem that Christ overcomes. The answer to the problem of death is life and uh, life precisely in the place of death. So Jesus' death is not one of spilt blood for an angry God who needs death to satisfy his wrath, this gets every element wrong. Death was not what the sacrifices represented, and it's not what the death of Christ means. Jesus embodied resurrection life. And this, you know, it it is his fully uh, embodied self raised and ascended that enables his high priestly office to be carried out. And this is the center of the salvation in the book of of Hebrews. And this is what the sacrificial imagery involves. The writer of Hebrews, like Paul, will let death stand, though. He'll talk about the death of Christ, like Paul does. But he lets it stand for the whole uh, life, death, resurrection, ascension. Paul says in Corinthians, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. There it is. But then he goes on to say, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul goes on to say that a gospel that does not bring out the resurrection is worthless. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. That is that the resurrection brings about the accomplishment of the atoning work of Christ. The cross isolated from the life, resurrection, and ascension of Christ 
does not bring about atonement, Paul says. He says he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. So Jesus is pictured as offering his body, his blood, himself. And the movement of this offering is one that places him in the resurrected and ascended body in the presence of the Lord. So that the offering is eternal life for humankind delivered by Christ in the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so the earthly high priest is depicted. He has to go in every year into the Holy of Holies. The earthly high priest is uh, offering the blood of another. But Jesus appears before God's presence, not to offer himself many times, but once for all time. When the author goes in 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 926 to say that Jesus appeared once for all time at the consummation of the ages to annul sin through his sacrifice. What is he arguing? He's saying that Jesus' self before God in the Holy of Holies is the sacrifice. Jesus mediates for us. He is the, the, you know, the object that he offered when he uh, appeared before God. Jesus' self is the sacrifice that effected atonement. So the center is not Jesus' death outside the gates of Jerusalem, but his living human presence in heaven. Jesus' bodily resurrection to indestructible life, it holds together the writer's depictions of Jesus offering his body, his blood, and himself before God in heaven. And it says that he's made perfect. And we'll discuss as we go through, you know, when did this happen? He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And the description is that he was made perfect in and through his resurrected, ascended life. Being designated, that's the point when he was designated by God, Hebrews 5 says, according to the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. He is a priest forever, continually interceding for us. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. The Lord is at your right hand is the picture that the writer quotes from Psalms 110. So what is at stake in Hebrews? I think what's at stake is two things. How we read the Old Testament, how we understand the continuing significance of the Old Testament, how we read and understand the sacrifice of Christ, and how we put these two things together. So as we work through Hebrews, we're actually going to work on our interpretive understanding of moving from the transition from the Old Testament to the New. And what I will argue is that we find, what we find is not allegory, but the idea that Christ is the reality of what is described in the Old Testament. The Old Testament writings are treated as a mystery That is, they didn't make sense in and of themselves. The Jews didn't completely understand them. You know, this is like the Egyptians. Slavoj Zizek always said, the mystery of the Egyptians, the Egyptians themselves did not understand. 
The mystery of the Jews, the Jews themselves did not understand. This mystery is revealed in Christ. He brings coherence to the Old Testament history. So the author gives us the pattern for a typological reading. That is, here's the shadow in the old and here is the reality. Jesus is a better high priest, a better covenant, a better sacrifice. And then you might ask the question, well, so what? Why does that matter? And the writer of Hebrews would go on to say, well, depart from, do not depart from him, because if you depart from the better priest, the better covenant, and the better sacrifice, you will be dead in the wilderness. You will not enter into the heavenly rest. You will sacrifice the Son of God again. You're in danger of crucifying the Lord of glory a second time. And so the warning passages of Hebrews and the faith passage, you know, of Hebrews 11 especially, are two ways of saying the same thing. Have faith and trust in God. Let's sing our hymn of benediction.